You're listening to Momentum, a show that helps men succeed in life. It was about fitting in. The crowd I chose to try and fit in with were the ones that exposed me for the first time and a number of times along the journey. It was about wanting to fit in, wanting to connect with those around me. Now, here's your hosts, Tim and Dez. Well, welcome to this week's Momentum. It is uh, Tim and Dez with you once again and wherever you are around Australia right now. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, really appreciate you doing that. A quick point to our website before we launch into this week's show, MomentumAustralia.org. You can give us some feedback, maybe ask a question, check out previous shows, and maybe even consider financially supporting this uh, ministry as well. But uh, really great to have you here. As it is, of course, my co-host, friend and colleague, Des Kennedy. How are you this week, my friend? I'm good. I'm really good. You know, it's exciting this week because we actually have a new support line for men. Mm. And it's something we've been talking about for a while, but we have the Momentum Care Line. And the amazing thing is we've got an amazing number and an easy number for men to remember. And it's one 800 0 men which is 636, so 1-800-000-MEN. The service is provided by our friends at CareLine Connections, and if you're interested in setting up a similar facility, uh, carelineconnections.org.au. But in in Momentum's case, you can reach out and get help seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., 1-800-000-MEN. Yeah, 1-800-000-MEN. Use that number if you need and spread it around to other guys as well because, uh, as we know, it is important that we stay connected and have conversations at times. Don't do life on your own. If you've got nobody around that you feel like you can have a confidential conversation with, uh, ring the care line, one 800 You know, on Momentum this year, we've spoken a lot with guests about certain topics. This week, giving a heads up, is going to be a little different, but it's going to be an incredible story that I want you to tune in and listen to. It's an incredible story of transformation. Our guest this week is a continuous improvement specialist. It's a big word. I'll get you to explain that later on. He's also John Maxwell, certified coach, teacher, and speaker. He's a passionate guy about developing capacity, capability in people through training, coaching, and mentoring to benefit them and the organizations they work with. He's also got a huge heart and a desire for unity among the church at large. You know, when you hear all of that, and it's all good stuff, and we'll get him to explain what some of it actually means, but it's hard to believe that during a previous stage in his life, this guy was lost, directionless, and on a very self-destructive path of drug addiction. Our special guest in this week's Momentum is Bobby Aiken. Great to have you here, Bobby. Good to be here. Thanks, gents. It's fascinating. We've got an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman all in one place and agreeing <laughs> at the same time. But what is important to note is his birthday is St. Patrick's Day. That is highly important. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Welcome, Bobby. Ticking all the boxes on this week's momentum. But uh, look, let's uh, let's launch into your story, Bobby, because it is a powerful one of transformation, as we've alluded to. And I just want the guys listening to, to stay tuned because, um, you know, wherever you are on your journey, whether it's a faith journey or not, it might be applicable to your life right now, but uh, your journey starts back in 1976. Bobby, you don't look that old, mate. 17th of March, you were born. Tell us a bit about your uh, your early early life, your upbringing, etc. back in Scotland. Uh, well, look, as I said, I can't take much kind of credit for when I was born. I just uh, I came along at the time that I was supposed to come along, and I was the second of three sons born into my family. My father was an executive in the oil and gas industry. I grew up um, in the northeast of Scotland, 
uh, for those that maybe aren't aware, Aberdeen is known as the oil capital of Europe. And a lot of people in that area work for directly for the oil industry or for industries supporting the oil industry in that area. Um, and so like many others, my father was in the oil and gas industry, um, went on to become an international executive in that space. And my mother was a former nurse who um, moved into being a stay-at-home mom while she had three young boys and then moved back into business later on in life. So what was your early family life like? So I suppose starting point, I've got nothing else to compare it to. It was the only one I had. So (laughs) my home life was, um, it was a nice, friendly, relaxed environment. My father, due to the industry that he was in, and the more and more he got promoted and got to senior levels, the more he was away from home traveling. Um, which then put obviously more of the more of the pressure on my mom, who was entirely capable to look after the three of us. But yeah, we, we grew up in an environment where my father traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we, we would he would come home when he was home due to the business. He was always working, sat with his laptop, sat with his computer. Um, and if, he was either away or when he was home, frequently he was sat in front of watching sport or on the golf course. So it it sounds like he was fairly absent from your life, Bobby. Is that a fair thing to say? I mean, he was kind of around, but not particularly active in you and your brother's lives at a young age. Uh, Look, um, when we were much younger, he was more present. But as we grew up and he got busier, then he was less and less around. Um, To the point where at one point in time, he was working three to six months in Africa. Oh. And then he would come home for short stints and then be away and things like that. And um, yeah, look, I, I, I want to make this very clear. I, I love my dad to bits. Um, his, and anybody who's read Chapman's Love Languages and things like that, his way of showing us love was to make sure that we were provided for, that we always had a home, that we always had everything we needed. Mm. And for him to do that, he used the skills that he had and he went into business and he went into jobs. And so for him traveling, that was part of his way of showing that he loved us because he was engaging in work and things like that, that were important for how he wanted to show us love. Mm. That's a, that's a good perspective on that, by the way. Uh, Mm. I'm not sure all sons who are in that situation would have that same positive perspective. So that's really cool. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I've got to be, I've got to be honest as at the time I didn't. Yeah. Right. He just wasn't there and I didn't get it when I was younger. That wasn't my perspective of things, but as you grow up, as you mature, as you begin to understand that parents are actually people too, trying to do the best that they can with what they've got, you begin Mm. to learn and understand to see a perspective. And let's be honest, when we become parents ourselves, that vastly shifts the paradigm of understanding parenthood. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But Bobby, we're going to fast forward to 1988 and you're around 12 years of age, I think at this stage. And you know, you had your first encounter with drugs and it was marijuana. Before we launch into that part of the story, do you think that where your relationship with your parents and your dad and your brothers was at at that stage, was there stuff happening in the backstory that kind of led you down that path? Or was there another reason why at the age of 12, you, you suddenly decided that this was something you try? Um, look, I think it, it wasn't so much anything going on negatively at, at home. Um, 
I, I, by the age of 12, I grew up in a small village and I know people joke about it now, but effectively we were allowed to get up, grab our bikes, take off out the driveway as long as we were back in time for dinner. Hmm. So I had the freedom to move around the village, to go and hang out in the park. And nobody really asked what I was up to. That being said, at that point in time, you're young, you're looking to kind of hang out with a crew, you're trying to become part of the peer group and things like that. And it was that those combination of those things put me in a scenario where the peer group I was trying to connect into, they happened to be smoking marijuana. So then just describe how, how that went from them smoking marijuana <laughs> to you smoking marijuana. I mean, it's a fairly obvious, oh, well, they just asked me or they offered it, but but describe that moment. Did, did you ask, did they offer? And how, how did that feel? Did you feel like it was something good at the time or did you feel a sense of, oh, I should probably shouldn't be doing this? Let's be honest, since then, there's lots of anti-drug campaigns and all of this kind of stuff. Hmm. At that point in my life, I hadn't been exposed to a load of anti-drug campaigns. So I didn't actually see there was anything wrong with it. I saw a bunch of guys hanging around who were all doing it. And one of them turned and offered me a joint. It was really that simple. And my thought process was, I can take that joint, receive it, and be part of what's going on, hmm. or I can not yeah. Mm. And it really came down to that. So I took it, I tried it and that was kind of it. I was, I was pretty much hooked. So how often would you have had a joint at that age? Was it like every day or was it? Look, look at that age, it was probably only on weekends when I was interacting with that crowd. Um, the more, the more that I'd been into it, the, the more I was around it. And eventually you start figuring out, right, okay, how do I, by my own, because initially you're just smoking dope that's given to you. Mm. But then mm. you start figuring out how to get your own dope to smoke and things like that. And, mm. and then when you get to the point that you're learning how to smoke it and get obtain it for yourself, then it becomes more frequent. Mm. And yeah, look, by the time I was 14, it was probably a daily occurrence. Oh, wow. So, so how did you afford to... I mean, I don't know what a joint would have cost in those days, but <laughs> look, look, to be honest, it was it was quite simple for me because I was at a private school in Aberdeen City and I lived I lived an hour's bus ride away from there. So I my my parents gave me money for bus rides, for food, for all these types of things. Um and they gave me a kind of pocket money allowance, if you like. And all, all, it, all it took for me was to skip a few meals and divert some of my allowance. And I was able to chip that in to buy, I, mean, I wasn't vast, buying vast quantities, let's yeah. be honest. I wasn't out mm. there buying ounces and ounces of marijuana, but it allowed me to buy enough to, to have some to smoke and be part of that group. Mm. Mm. And so was it the, being part of the group, was that what the appeal was? I mean, was the marijuana itself appealing? Or was it the fact that you were with you know, your peers and you're one of the buddies and one of the guys? So I, I would say initially it was about being involved in the peer group. Yeah. But then after a while, it became about the opportunity to smoke dope. Because, oh, okay. And the, the reason I know the shift is because you get to the point where you quite, ha I, I, well, I got to the point where I'd quite happily smoke dope on my own. Right. Hmm. That's where you know there's a shift from it being about the peer group to being about the thing itself. Yeah. 
It's an interesting distinction. Let, let me just ask about then your brothers and your family at large. Did they have any idea that this was happening for you? Were your brothers in on this? Did you share this with them? Or was this just a solitary thing that you were kind of doing without your family aware of what was happening? Oh, look, I think um, my elder brother would definitely have been aware of what was going on. I mean, it's a small town. Um, my younger brother wouldn't have been initially because he was three years younger, so he wasn't really involved. But as time went on and he grew up, he became aware of that. And that was, I mean, that was all part and parcel of the time we grew up and the social groups we connected with. Did that sort of impact your relationship with uh, your brothers and parents? As I mentioned earlier, I'm a middle child. Yeah. So my brothers have always been closer with each other than I ever have been with either of them. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. Mm. So... From that point of view, that never really changed. I mean, we still had a, we had times where we related well, and we had times where we didn't. I mean, that's yeah. that's part of being brothers growing up. Um, I, I think there was times it became a point of connection for my brothers and I, and times it was a point of difference, and we clashed over certain things as a result. But yeah, I I don't think I don't think that at that point in time, certainly not at that young age, because. As I say, it was small amounts. It wasn't vast quantities. At that age, it didn't really create a massive problem between me and my family per se. That mm. didn't really happen till later on. No. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the progression, Bobby, because you went from using to dealing. And um, tell, tell us a bit about how you progressed from just being a user to then actually dealing this stuff to other kids in the village. Look, that, that really came about predominantly because of what we said, right? My my personal requirement and how much dope I personally wanted increased. Mm. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a way of funding it. So the fact that I knew other people wanted this and I could become a conduit for them meant that I would effectively reduce my costs in acquiring marijuana, et cetera, at the same time as meeting a need that was already there. So to me, and this was the way that I did begin to distinguish it. I never went out offering people drugs. Yeah. Right. Because the, the, the whole symbolism that came about of drug pushers and people that are forcing people to become addicts and all that. Mm. I'm, I, I was at peace with myself that what I was doing wasn't wrong because I never gave it to someone who didn't ask for it. Okay. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know it's I know it's a bit twisted and it's a bit of a kind of get out of jail free card for some people <laughs> thinking. But that was how I made sense of the fact that I wasn't doing something wrong. Yeah. Hmm. And and I suppose on that basis, that's how the reason why it didn't affect your relationship with your parents, for example. Because you didn't feel you were doing anything wrong. So it was just business as usual. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that point in time. I wasn't going out there causing trouble. I wasn't yeah. going out there, start, you know, getting in fights and all this kind of stuff that are real antisocial behavior. I'd go out, get stoned and sit somewhere and watch TV or listen to music or, you know what I mean? It was, it wasn't something where I thought, look, okay, I'm a, I'm a troublemaker by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. And because of the, mm. the frequency of that in the communities that I was in, everybody else was doing it too. So it was yeah. so normalized. Mm. Mm. 
Things did take a turn though, Bobby, and we're going to explore that on the other side of the break. Things did eventually go from bad to worse and you lost your relationship with your family, but then had an incredible transformation, which is all on the other side of this break. It's an interesting story. Our special guest is Bobby Aitken here on Momentum this week. While we take a short break, I encourage you to have a quick squeeze around the website, MomentumAustralia.org, and we're going to hear the next part of Bobby's story on the other side of this break right here on Momentum. Stay tuned. You're listening to Momentum a show that helps men succeed in life. Find out more at MomentumAustralia.org. Well, welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging around and uh, tuning back in. It's Tim and Des with you, and our special guest this week is uh, Bobby Aitken. Just a quick point before we launch back in with Bobby, uh, MomentumAustralia.org, our website, and as Des mentioned at the beginning of the show, a brand new Momentum Care line that you can call between 9 and 11 in seven days a week. The number is one 800 If you're in need of a confidential conversation with someone in a safe environment, please, please call the care line. Reach out, one 800 636 uh, so Bobby Aitken is our special guest. Bobby has an amazing story of uh, transformation and we're just finding out a bit about his uh, early childhood of uh, drugs and uh, from going to being a user to a, a dealer uh, and this relationship that he had with his parents and his family and how that's uh, starting to get affected by what is happening. How did it affect you? Did you feel the effects of, of the drugs? Did they make you feel more self-confident? Did they make you feel schizophrenic or what was the impact on you um, and your multiple personalities? <laughs> it's interesting because now, look, I'm, I'm going through the place where people constantly come up to me and they tell me, oh, you're always on the go. You're always doing stuff. You're always here, there and everywhere and involved. And to be honest, I'm actually getting assessed for to whether I've got ADHD. Yeah. But when I was younger, I suppose I was constantly stoned. So wow. I was much more chilled. I didn't go running all over the place. I wasn't doing lots of stuff all the time. Um, and in fact, one of my friends, her husband asked my dad. So my one of my friends um, in ministry, a lady called Wendy Yap and her husband have become quite good friends with my parents. And um, Kai Seen had asked my dad, what I was like as a kid. Cause they were like, he must've been all over the shop. And my dad was like, well, no, not really. Yeah. Um, and the, and thinking back, I probably was just in that constantly stone state. And then yeah. anybody who's read recent reports on the effects would see that the, the impact of smoking can last anywhere between four and 24 hours and wow. things like that. So yeah, I, I suppose I I would have been, but again, it's I didn't I got to the point where I didn't know any different. Yes, it was the normal for you. So it was my normal yeah. state. It was just how things were. Bobby, let's continue with the story. Let's pick that back up because at this stage, this is around about nineteen ninety three, you were sent off to boarding school. And you say that this is where the spiral really accelerated for you. So tell us about that journey. Yeah, look, boarding school was interesting. Boarding school is one of the things that I look back on as one of the best and the worst things that ever happened to me. Mm. Um, and it's uh, I'll, I'll explain what I mean about that. I went, I was sent off to boarding school. My pair, my dad, I'd mentioned earlier, he went off to work in Nigeria. Um, my parents, my parents made the call one because um, they, my parents always, they, they effectively treated each of the three of us as individuals. Okay. So in that, they recognized that we were different people. We had different strengths. My little brother's always been really good with sports. 
I wasn't. Mm. Right. So I, I got sent to a boarding school, which was really good for me academically and everything else. Um, in going to that boarding school, I found intellectual stimulation and things that were brilliant for me. I found a challenge because the school I'd moved from ditched all my schoolwork in the middle of my kind of GCSE standard grade year. So I had to then I'll do my G every, I had to do my GCSEs in one year instead of two. Oh, um, So there was that kind of challenge, but, but I actually really like ch being challenged. It's one of the things that gets me going. So that was brilliant. And I found a school that, of, they actually recognized that and me and they were trying to interview me to see if I would become one of the prefects of the school and all these different types of things. Yeah. Obviously I wasn't smoking dope every day while I was at boarding school because you're in a confined area. Yes. It's not quite the freedom that you've got at home. So that was probably a really good plus as well because that was out. But on the downside, I came in at a really awkward time where I was the only person that joined the boarding school in my year at that point in time, oh. which meant I was an outsider to every group that was established in that boarding school and try as you might. These are, these are guys that have been together since they started school. They know each other and they've got these natural bonds that I always felt like an outsider the whole time I was there. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. So I, the boarding school was in Edinburgh. Um, the, my, obviously my family were still in um, up outside Aberdeen. And so I'm three hours minimum away from my family, from my connections. I, I was blessed that my cousin was actually at the same school, but I mean, because he's busy, he was in senior school. I only got to see him infrequently. Mm. So again, I started to figure out ways of escaping to find people that accepted me for who I am. Yeah. Let's expand on that. 1994, you're about 17, 18. You, were, you say you were introduced to then taking speed. Um, and this was at a party. So this is a progression, obviously, from marijuana. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, so what happened was I, I came back I because I really didn't enjoy, I enjoyed the schooling, but I didn't enjoy living with a bunch of people who constantly made you feel like an outsider. So I basically yeah. didn't want to carry on at boarding school. And as a result, I left. I came back to the local um, government-run academy. Right. And... That, that, again, gave me the freedom to be out wandering about doing everything. One of my friends, and, and well, he was a friend at the time, hasn't really been since, um, an English guy had invited, he was having a huge house party, his, friend, his parents were away, and he and a couple of others had organized to get our, our whole group of friends a load of speed. And I never tried mm -hmm. speed before, some of them had. So I went along to the party and tried speed for the first time. Again, all my mates were doing it. I kind of in that group. Um, just just to put that in context, I I had kind of been involved in light touch on LSD and some of these things I tried before, but never amphetamines. Describe speed to me because I have no idea what that is. Sorry, so I'm an old bloke. <laughs> what we got as speed was amphetamines, basically a crushed up white powder that you would snort or oh, I mean, right. you could have smoked it if you want, but that was basically the way that we did. Okay. You chopped it up, you ground it into powder and you snorted it. Uh, okay. And how did that make you feel? For me, I would take speed because speed would make you alert. It would make you awake. You could stay yeah. up for days. I mean, literally, we would, we would start partying on a Thursday night and go to sleep on Sunday. Wow. Um, that, that was the kind of environment that kind of evolved from that. 
But for me, it meant that I could smoke dope for longer. (laughs) Because when when you smoke dope, you typically get really drowsy and you get Uh, to the point where you almost nod off, uh, right? If you smoke so much of it, right? Right. But if if I took speed, I didn't have that problem. And yeah, look, they had parties, lots of dance music, all these kind of things. Um, and that was that just opened another doorway that moved into from speed, ecstasy then became a big thing, and and then cocaine. So how did that affect your relationship when you went into that sort of drug, you know, with your family, for example? Did they notice a change? And look, they, they must have. And I know yeah. there must have been a load of different things going on. But again, when you're the one that's taking drugs, your entire perception of reality is just warped so you take the drugs and then when the drugs are wearing off you go through what everybody calls a come down right you feel horrible you're sweating Mm -hmm. you look horrible you're dehydrated all of these different types of things and whilst you can kid yourself that you're masking that kind of thing it's very visual it's very obvious to people Yeah. yeah hiding yourself away until you're feeling normal is about the only way to mask it from your family right yeah mm. yeah I, I suppose the the only kind of grace is i never went beyond it being a recreational thing that was weekends so, so i wasn't taking speed next to every day of the week like i'd smoke dope oh okay okay right yeah, yeah for me it was very much it was weekends it was parties it was that kind of environment in which i would engage with these things but i was still at this point in time smoking dope every day wow Bobby, did you did you feel, or do you remember feeling? Is probably a better way to put that. But do you remember feeling like anxious or nervous that this was getting out of control, that this had you know got its hooks into, that you were perhaps uh, addicted to at least one of the substances, if not having issues with others? Did that? Do you remember feeling kind of like, oh, I should probably get a handle on this? No, I didn't. And again, I was in a whole group where this was the norm. Yeah. This is what we did. And we were all, you know, that whole thing about groupthink. Yes. When you're around a bunch of other people that are all doing the same thing, the, no, the behavior is completely normalized. You don't seem like you're an outsider. You yeah. fit in with everybody else. Even though their lives are a complete mess, you at least have a tribe or a group mm. with which you can connect and journey on with. Um, that really was the reality for us. And we carried on in it. That sense of belonging. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So shortly mm. after, at some point, your family started to suspect that things weren't what they should have been. How, how did that come about? A few things happened over the years. I got diagnosed with depression at one point, okay. which is probably from taking lots of chemicals and all that kind of yeah. thing. We tried a number of bits and pieces. My behavior became more erratic. I became more difficult to live with. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't want my parents involved in my life. I'd start, sh- I started shutting them out, had less and less to do with them. Uh, things, things would happen. Arguments would happen and they would spiral out of control and wow. all of that kind of stuff. So pretty much uh, the only way I can imagine it being like, from what I can remember from where I was, it must've been a nightmare for my folks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It was they would have no idea what was going on or how to deal with it. No. They wouldn't have had the skills. You don't ever remember a conversation that they sat you down, kind of pinned you or tried to pin you and go, Bobby, what's going on? We've seen some stuff happening. You don't ever remember having that conversation with your folks or you were too busy trying to hide away? But it kind of 
and that was one of the reasons I ended up getting diagnosed with depression because it almost became an excuse or a way of diverting that challenge into, no, I'm not on drugs. I'm just not well. Right. And then these kind of conversations, I mean, my, my folks took me to hypnotherapists and all sorts of stuff to deal with things. Hmm. Yeah. So there was, there was definitely attempts to help fix stuff. Yeah. But when the real core of the problem wasn't going away or wasn't changing, the, any fix is a band-aid, right? Yeah. 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 You keep walking through or climbing barbed wire fences. It doesn't matter how many band-aids you stick on. You're still going to get cut hands, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Look, Bobby, I think what we're going to do is we're going to pause it there for this week's show. And I know we haven't got to the bit where you get transformed and set free. And there's a whole other story that we're going to go on. And we're going to save that for next week's show. But as we, as we wrap up this week's show, let me just ask you this. Um, when you look back... Um, and we've talked about the sense of belonging. We've talked about then the fact that you actually did enjoy getting high. But for, for guys listening right now, if they perhaps are on some of this journey, maybe they've had some struggles in this area too. When you look back, do you see that there was something deep within you that you were trying to mask, like a sense of pain? Was it perhaps your father's absence that was actually causing you to step into this space, to, to numb out, to that sort of thing? And for guys listening, do, if you can offer some advice in that space if there's some wisdom or advice you can take from your journey just to leave with the guys this week yeah look as i said at the beginning of my journey it was about fitting in yeah i the crowd i chose to try and fit in with were the ones that put me that exposed me for the first time and a number of times along the journey it was about wanting to fit in wanting to connect with those around me um and i don't i don't want to I don't want to disconnect and not take responsibility for the fact it was my choice to do what I did. It was my choice that entered in, but I wanted to connect with somebody. And the, the, these people were people who would take me in and make, make me feel like I was part of something. Yeah. Um, it was easy. It was, it was easy. All I had to do was take drugs and I fit it in. I was just going to say, there's no sense of, belonging at home necessarily because your father was away and all that sort of stuff you'd been to boarding school I and mean, all those were really triggers and that you meet this group of guys who seemed to be in the same planet as you and it was easy to fit in with them yeah absolutely and i mean the, the weirdest thing is all the way through this journey i remember distinctly even when i was in a crowded room with a whole bunch of people that were as high as i was I still felt entirely alone and I knew wow. that I had never fixed the problem of feeling alone. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a powerful way to end this week's show. We're going to leave it there. But can I say, if that is you right now, for whatever reason that you feel alone in your life and you want to reach out and have a confidential conversation with someone, I'm going to point you to our Momentum Care Line. It is a brand new feature, and we're so excited that it's there. 1-800-000-MEN. That's 1-800-000-636. Please pick up the phone. Have a confidential conversation with someone if you feel like you need to. Reach out and do not do life on your own. MomentumAustralia.org is our website. I encourage you to check that out and have a look around Momentum and what we do. But excited to hear the second part of Bobby's story next week. We'd love you to tune in for that because eventually in 1998, things reach a point and there's an incredible transformation from where Bobby was to where he is today. And that's going to be next week's show. My thanks to Bobby. Des, look forward to having you back on the show next week, mate. And looking forward to you tuning in as well to Momentum next week. Take care.
You've been listening to Momentum, a show that helps men succeed in life. For more information or to hear this week's show again, go to MomentumAustralia.org. You can also access a whole range of resources to help you on your journey and to get in touch with the team at MomentumAustralia.org. Until next time, keep moving forward with Momentum. Momentum.